my name is Justin Kluwer, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a big subject that we somehow <laughs> have never gotten to before. And that is writer, director, producer, Phil Tucker. Yeah, people have really been clamoring for this one. They've just been beating down the doors. Where's the <laughs> Phil Tucker episode? Phil Tucker has a small but real contribution to film history, which is when you think of the iconic images of film, you know, you may think of Harold Lloyd hanging off the clock tower. Uh, You may think of Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman standing by that plane at the end of Casablanca. You may think of Orson Welles in front of that giant picture of himself. Or you may think of a guy in a gorilla suit wearing a diving helmet. That is correct. That is Phil Tucker's great legacy. Phil Tucker... Uh, to those who are interested in 50s sci-fi monster movies, he's a reputation as being the other Ed Wood. But unlike Ed Wood, there was never really that much of a story there. Like, nobody talked about Phil Tucker's life in the same way that Wood would often be associated with the many films that he made. And while if you look at Phil Tucker's IMDb, it looks like he made a bunch of films, when in reality, he made Robot Monster, Cape Canaveral Monsters... Uh, Dance Hall Racket, and all the other ones are mostly just uh, burlesque films where he spent a night filming a burlesque performance, and that's all it was. And there's kind of the the dark matter of his filmography, which are the movies that like were, were barely released, that mm-hmm. weren't released. There are still some question marks around the Phil Tucker filmography that uh, nobody is seeking to provide an answer to because nobody really cares all that much about Phil Tucker uh, beyond Robot Monster. I mean, we're going to talk about a book that was written about Robot Monster and Phil Tucker, I Cannot Yet I Must, the true story of the best bad monster movie of all time, Robot Monster, written by Anders Runestad. And like this guy, there will never be, I think, a more comprehensive book on Robot Monster and this director because it is a staggering 696 pages. It's one of the best books I've ever seen just about a single movie. Like, everything you could possibly want to know about Robot Monster, everything you could possibly want to know about Phil Tucker. Like, Phil Tucker has always been a little bit of a mysterious figure because I think the only extensive interview that was ever done with him was for the book The 50 Worst Films of All Time, which came out in 1978. It was written by Harry and Michael Medved, and Harry and Michael Medved are responsible for the cult that surrounds Ed Wood. Their follow-up book, The Golden Turkey Awards, called Plan 9 from Outer Space, The Worst Movie Ever Made. And they interviewed interviewed Phil Tucker for 50 Worst Films of All Time. And they're arguably the people who also elevated Robot Monster to ultimate cult status, because that's the place where most people heard about it. And I read 50 Worst Films of All Time when I was a kid. It was at the library. And of course, like like any kid would seeing that book, I was my imagination was just lit up by the sight of that that gorilla with a diving helmet. And the interview with Phil Tucker, like it had a lot of good information in it, but there were a lot of sort of ellipses and mysteries to it he came across as a as a rather uh mysterious figure where like he he would mention these movies that he directed that there seems to be no evidence of ever existing or or seemed to be no evidence of ever existing until this anders runstead guy got at it he seemed conflicted about having made robot monster you know in the interview with the medveds at one point he would say you know for 
for the amount of money I spent, $14,000, I thought I achieved greatness. And then a few minutes later, he would say, ah, it was a piece of shit. And then there was also the widely reported rumor, which goes mentioned, but frustratingly unelaborated on in the Medved book, that he maybe attempted suicide after Robot Monster came out because he was so ashamed of it. So the crazy story behind that is that he did attempt suicide, but it wasn't because Robot Monster was such a disaster. It was actually uh, related to the film that never got released, Space Jockey. And that suicide thing is something that, like, rumors have gone around that Phil Tucker, I mean, I say rumors, he did it multiple times, oftentimes because people believed he wanted attention for whatever movie was about to come out, as is documented in a certain book written by another famous filmmaker, which Will's about to read Oh now. man, I am chomping at the bit to read you guys this. It's a book called The Hollywood Rat Race by Ed Wood. Yes, that Ed Wood. He writes in a, in a chapter called How to Make a Cheap Picture and Fail. So he's got this section here where he's like subtweeting various people he knew, and he says, Another so-called producer has a unique way of distinguishing himself from his failures. My first experience with him was to write the pilot screenplay for a proposed television series for which I was never paid. But the guy had such a dynamic veneer you just like to hear him talk. But I guess this is the one attribute which has kept him in backers all these years. Backers who put money into his films, which are never shown. It's an absolute fact. This character has made several films yet has never had one released. I'm outraged. Robbery, I call it, yet he never goes to jail. He really does pl have plenty of imagination to pour into his sales pitch, only one day it's going to get him killed. Whenever he finds out his newest bad picture won't sell, he comes up with the damnedest strategy. Suicide. In one instance, he sat on the roof of a hotel with a can of his film in his lap and his legs dangling over the street 15 floors below, and then he gobbled down sleeping pills. Of course, the police had been conveniently notified, so they arrived in plenty of time, and Edward goes on. I, I read a lot from that just because uh, th there's a lot of evidence to, to show that uh, Phil Tucker and Edward not only knew each other and worked together, but they seem to have actively really disliked each other. So I was shocked to learn that Phil Tucker was an assistant director on Plan 9 from Outer Space. And so like uh, Anders Runestad in his book, he is like the ultimate detective because he found a passage in a biography of one of the actors in Plan 9 from Outer Space who mentions a guy who was the assistant director named Phil who brought her to meet his good friend, Lenny Bruce. And that has to be Phil Tucker. By the way, if we are to compare the lives of Phil Tucker and Ed Wood, I would say that Lenny Bruce is kind of like Phil Tucker's Bella Lugosi in the sense that it's like, mm -hmm. like if there's a really famous name that came into this rather insignificant man's orbit, like that, that's it. But it's kind of a reverse Bella Lugosi because Phil, because Lenny Bruce was on his way up to being really famous as opposed to Bela Lugosi on his way down. And so if there's anything else that Phil Tucker did that has attracted any sort of attention, it's it's his proximity to Lenny Bruce and the fact that he made the only two films that Lenny Bruce acted in, like as an actor. And in fact, not only that, uh, Lenny Bruce wrote Dance Hall Racket. And it's a gem, isn't it, Will? Yeah, so it was, believe it or not, not my first time seeing this movie. 
Oh, um, I believe that. <laughs> although it, it felt like seeing it for the first time again, because there's nothing about this movie that's memorable. It's from 1953, and it was produced by George Weiss, who was the producer of Glen or Glenda, and as well as a lot of other exploitation movies at the time, Chained Girls, Olga's House of Shame. Dance Hall Racket is set at this, uh, well, at a dance hall, you know, a skeedy uh, speakeasy. Uh, Lenny Bruce is the enforcer. He's the minion who works there. And he gives a performance that's very kind of Bowery Boys-ish. You know, <laughs> he, he, he really kind of hams it up. And Lenny's boss is played by Timothy Farrell, who was in a lot of the Ed Wood movies. He was the doctor in Glen or Glenda, for instance. And the, the plot is kicked into motion when there's been a murder. The Lenny Bruce character has killed somebody and a detective goes into the dance hall undercover to try to figure out what's going on and finds out that it's a diamond smuggling operation and a house of prostitution. The movie is notable entirely for the fact that it's written by and starring Lenny Bruce, although you will not find much evidence of his future success in it. There's very few jokes, except for some real um, painful double entendres. But there is a lot of footage of people dancing. Oh, man. (laughs) Not fun dancing. Just as if you were sitting at a party watching like lame relatives go at it. Yeah, there are some like there's some underwear scenes of some of the girls. Uh, I think there may have been some nudity in the original version, but it was cut out of the version I watched for this. It's notable somewhat for the fact that Lenny Bruce's relatives are in it. His wife, Honey Harlow, who is an exotic dancer, she plays his girlfriend in it. His mother, Sally Marr, is in there as the brassy hostess of the place. I was having trouble following the movie, but then I realized that there actually is no plot to follow. It's just like a lot of character moments, a lot of vignettes with just like the eccentric denizens of the place. And Phil Tucker directs it uh, just in leaden fashion. Like there's, you know, there's there's not a lot happening with the camera here. It's very anonymous in the way that it's directed. If it wasn't for the fact that you know, Lenny Bruce wrote and stars in it, no one would speak of it at all. Probably not even in relation to the uh, Robot Monster movie. Because Phil Tucker, as a director, not much style there. I mean, you can see him getting better as he goes along. But the elements that make Robot Monster, the specialness that everybody talks about, it's arguable that it's even his doing. Because when you get to Robot Monster... Even the author of the book that we keep talking about says that, oh, you know, it may actually be the influence of someone like executive producer Al Zimbalist or credited writer who supposedly did nothing on it, Wyatt Ordung, that has more with the kind of feel of the entire picture. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, Wyatt Ordung is the one who, you know, gave us those excellent lines of dialogue, you know, to be like the human, to laugh, feel, want. Why are these things not in the plan? And Al Zimbalist went off to produce a bunch of films, including Cat Women of the Moon, which is kind of like a gender flipped uh, robot monster, where in this case, it's like a cat woman who has to go against her mission because she fell in love with one of the men, the human men but i will say that having watched four phil tucker movies in preparation for this i definitely see mr tucker's style on this or or lack thereof i mean phil tucker directs as if he's a blind man he just has no 
in in none of his movies does he have any sense for what's a good composition you know where should anything be in the frame where, like how do you light in a scene it's because you didn't watch it in 3d will the way it was meant to be experienced oh my goodness bill tucker says that the way they shot 3d was amazing because you have to shoot with two cameras to get two angles and that he would only print the takes on one camera and just mark it down on where it is on the second camera so then when they got to the editing they just cut the negative which you never do because if you damage that it's gone forever but that's the only way they could make the movie for fourteen thousand dollars i mean robot monster shot in four days i believe yeah that sounds about right uh for those who haven't seen it and you really should because it, it's good folks like it's it's the phil tucker movie that i would recommend it's set after the apocalypse uh, the entire human race has been wiped out except for a ban- except for one family, you know, one little group of survivors uh, led by George Nader. Uh, George Nader is the young leading man here, and history buffs will know that uh, George Nader was, uh, let's say, a friend of Rock Hudson's, whose uh, career was sacrificed for Rock Hudson. In fact, I think Rock Hudson left his entire estate to George Nader and his partner when he died, you know, basically like belated uh, appreciation. So the presence of George Nader in this movie, I think, adds to the Boulevard of Broken Dreams quality. (laughs) Well, almost all of the actors in this movie were like blacklisted during the kind of um, big anti-communist thing that was going on at the time. Well, Elmer Bernstein was. Elmer Bernstein, who uh, went on to do the music for The Ten Commandments and many other films, uh, Cape Fear, The Magnificent Seven also. He does the thundering soundtrack to this. You mean the, like, one piece of music that's repeated ad nauseum throughout? Da, 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 da. And this this soundtrack is so funny when you juxtapose it with the images that are on screen because Uh, don't you mean the beautiful images of (laughs) a guy just probably sweating up a storm and just shambling through the countryside in a giant gorilla suit there is so much footage of george barrows in that gorilla suit just walking through the countryside you could almost put it as like those relaxing things (laughs) (laughs) just like you're just experiencing a moment in time yeah so the chief villain of the film is roman who comes from the planet roman he is as we mentioned a gorilla with a diving helmet on it may not actually be a diving helmet i think that was debunked i think it's like a like some sort of a fake spaceman outfit yeah somebody constructed it it wasn't just a diving helmet they got it would have been way too heavy if it was too and it's got antennae and there are some scenes where you see see him like communicating like Mork from Orc through like this mirror that that he can talk to his superior at and it's also a gorilla in a diving helmet hey hey, hey don't forget his name great guidance great guidance yes there's some footage here that was stolen from uh, an earlier uh, dinosaur movie you know some some dinosaur stock stock footage stop motion stuff there's also some real live dinosaur stuff because it was the Hal Roach production 10,000 BC right that's the one because that stuff shows up all over the place like any if you need some dinosaur stock footage it's those two lame dinosaurs going at it and i believe the stop motion uh dinosaur stuff is from a sam newfield production but roman having destroyed the entire race is flummoxed trying to find these last few survivors who are living you know just down the road in bronson canyon um so a lot of the movie is spent as you said with roman just sort of traipsing around uh you know uh lumbering his gigantic gorilla body in scenic bronson canyon and tucker makes the wonderful decision to film him almost entirely in long shot (laughs) he's just this little speck like the bigfoot documentary just you see roman off in the distance (laughs) 
<laughs> while the music is thundering. Da, and da, 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 da. So what's special about this movie? Why do you think it, like, you know, bubbled up to the top and has remained there other than the iconic image of Roman? Or is that it? I think that's a lot of it. But also, I think just the character of Roman is fantastic because he's, you know, he's got that deep bellowing voice. Fool humans, you will not escape. And it's funny that, like, the voice was dubbed with, like, no consideration for how he was, like, acting. So, like, he'll be doing strange hand gestures as he's talking. But also, the plot shows, like, Roman developing humanity like he he falls in love with the leading lady and he does that wonderful speech when he's challenging great guidance he says i cannot yet i must speech don't you mean soliloquy will <laughs> oh yeah that's right sorry he says it to himself how do you calculate that at what point on the graph do must and cannot meet yet i must but i cannot it's beautiful stuff <laughs> it's beautiful and like like it fails but also like I'm watching it and I actually feel just a little bit for romance. I love that like all of Phil Tucker's movies, it feels like they just ran out of film and time because the movie just ends and you're like, oh, I guess that's it. Oh, and it was all a dream. <laughs> yeah, of course it was. Like every super lame stuff, it's always a dream. Or was it because some romans are shambling towards the camera? But yeah, in addition to the character of Roman and the way he looks, I think there's just like uh, a great shambolic atmosphere to the thing. Like, it's fun, it's light, it feels like a bunch of desperate people filming, like, just, like, like everything about it is bad, and everything about it is bad in a funny way. Like, the scenes where George Nader and... Claudia Barrett. Their love scenes together, which are, which are all pantomimed, you know, every scene is a miscalculation. And I think that because it lives in that bubble, if there was more going on in the movie, I bet you it would have been easier to forget. But because there's nothing except for Roman right at the front, he's on that poster with a giant skull that never appears in the movie. <laughs> and that's what burns into your mind. Yeah. And somehow that image across the movie's 62 minutes just never stops being funny. <laughs> no. You know, I mean, it's interesting that like other gorilla based films haven't stood the test of time like that like nobody talks about like the gorilla yeah it needs that extra little turn to make it something that no one has ever seen or has been recreated since now dance hall racket and robot monster were the first two films that tucker released again there was that well-publicized suicide attempt after robot monster came out which was supposedly spurred by a dispute he had with the film's distributors over the profits they they shut him out of the profits and there was also the fact that uh right before that first suicide attempt he had shot the movie space jockey and could not sell it anywhere and you know the author of the biography uh finds some amazing tidbits like samuel ziarkov saying at one point "Ugh, you can't even imagine the kind of movies we saw we watch there was this one where it was a bunch of people in a spaceship and they never got off and that's exactly what space jockey was despite the bad publicity that met robot monster i believe it was a box office success uh i know that he has said uh, Tucker said in his interviews that it made over a million dollars. I don't I don't know if I believe that. Maybe it did. Who knows? But it certainly made more than its meager investment. Tucker was able to continue as a director at low-level productions. He made a number of burlesque striptease movies. Uh, I've seen a few of them over the years, like Baghdad After Midnight, Dream Follies, which also has Lenny Bruce in it. 
Baked Out After Midnight is pretty funny. I, I haven't seen it recently, but it takes place at a travel agent's office. And, you know, it's a travel agent and a guy who wants to take a trip to Baghdad, you know, two shitty baggy pants comedians and, um, you know, various striptease acts take place. And then it cuts to Baghdad for the second half where it's just the travel agent's office again and more striptease acts as well as some like um you know jugglers and and unicyclists and stuff like that nothing to dislike people need to double bill it with edwards take it out and trade yeah you would have a great time if you did that and he did direct more narrative films after that including the fascinating sounding broadway jungle from 1955 and we should point out that it's believed that it's name was not Broadway Jungle, that it was Hollywood Jungle, but it's like an East Coast copy that is the one that became available, so the title of it was changed, because it doesn't take place on Broadway, it takes place in Hollywood. Now, I was very excited to see this one, because it was supposedly Phil Tucker's jaundiced view of uh, low-level filmmaking in Hollywood, and I thought, oh, this is great, like Phil Tucker doing the bad and the beautiful, you know. And not only that, but with Ed Wood as the lecherous director in the center of it. Sorry, an Ed Wood analog so the lead character's name is Fletcher and he's a very pompous but also very sleazy movie producer basically working in Skid Row and he's got an office and he's always talking about this uh this next great film he's going to make and you know he, he very very much carrying himself like an Orson Welles type and he's in a relationship with this faded actress, uh, you, you know, who is desperate for work. And he finally gets money to make a picture. And it comes from this small time hoodlum, uh, Georgie boy, who ha- who in turn has stolen the money from a big time gangster. You've given the entire plot of the movie. There's nothing else other than cars driving in this. Oh, man. The middle section of this film is as boring as movies get. It's just cars driving. It's people looking at each other. It's people walking through alleys. You can try to follow it, but there's no point following it because none of what happens in the middle of this movie will have anything to do but with it. But even the, the end of the movie is almost like a Lynchian, you know, experimental film where you see the director giving orders and they make no sense and then they just kind of wander off and the movie just ends. Just ends. Yeah, so, so finally, the big-time gangster comes to the set where uh, Fletcher is directing his little epic, kills, uh, sorry, you know, I watched it a week ago and I'm already forgetting what happens. Yeah, he kills Georgie Boy and there's a shootout. uh, Nothing happens to Fletcher. And then it ends with just like the weirdest last scene I think I've ever seen uh, where like there's, there's a black janitor who just sits at the desk in the movie studio and he starts imitating Fletcher, like starts shouting directions. And then it like cuts to a street And the narrator says something like, ah, but you must be careful. You must be wary of the of the fiendish producers who would sap your soul in the Hollywood jungle. And then it then ends. So there's some interesting theories of why the movie is the way that it is. And one of them is that it's because Phil Tucker was training himself to be an editor, which he had never done before. And the movie was an opportunity to do that, which when you watch the film, you're like, oh, yeah, because he does every editing trick in the book. I mean, not to the film's benefit, just like, why is there this crazy wipe happening? (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. The wipes, they look like they came out of like an early silent movie, like early, (laughs) early, early. So as far as a like, you know, oh, man, they're going to show you the seedy side of the industry. I guess you kind of get that. But you mostly get like, what would it feel like walking through the city and being bored? <laughs> I mean, just technically, this is as low as a major, well, not major, as low as a professional movie got at this time. I mean, 
the placement of the camera is totally arbitrary and it seems like there's no lighting whatsoever. There are just a ton of scenes where like, like it seems like people are lit with flashlights in the exterior scenes. People are backlit all the time. You can't tell who you're even looking at most of the time. The audio, it either sounds like it was recorded in a tin can or the leading lady is awkwardly dubbed for the whole movie. Um, I guess the thing that's most interesting about it is that the Fletcher character seems to have been based on Ed Wood. In that book we talked about, he lays out the whole theory about why it probably was based on Ed Wood. And like, he certainly seems a lot like the Johnny Depp version of the character, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He's even got the same um, facial hair. And like the idea of Phil Tucker hating Ed Wood so much and vice versa is like so funny. It's so funny. I guess people don't like looking in the mirror sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like, was he jealous of Ed Wood getting to make movies? Like, why would Ed Wood dislike him? I mean, that's what Anders Ronstad suggests, because Ed Wood made Glenn or Glenda with George Weiss, who was uh, Phil Tucker's erstwhile producer. And maybe Phil Tucker was like, who's this? Who's this pompous braggart coming in here? Like getting in good with Georgie, you know, it's like two people covered in garbage, like throwing garbage at each other. It's like it's not making a difference. Why are you continuing this fight? I mean, if nothing else, at least this movie exists as like a strange document, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, at, at least there is a movie that was probably based on Ed Wood. I mean, he probably didn't see it. But like in the moment that Edward was alive and still working. More enjoyable, although not still not particularly enjoyable, is uh, Phil Tucker's swan song as a director, The Cape Canaveral Monsters from 1960. You check this one out, right? I did. Uh, you know, it's almost too competent uh, for <laughs> Phil Tucker. Like things are kind of properly framed. Uh, the lighting is okay. I mean, the story, again, makes almost no sense. Almost seems to be Phil Tucker going, I can do Plan 9 from Outer Space, because this is also reanimated corpses um, that are moving around, powered by aliens. Yeah, it takes place in Florida, where the U.S. space program is. The plot involves these two celestial beings, uh, we first see them as little beams of light, who uh, inhabit the bodies of a couple who have died in a car accident. That early car accident scene is the funniest in the film, where, <laughs> where like, I, I don't even know how to describe it. People should just look it up. Look up, watch the first five minutes of the Cape Canaveral Monsters, because there's that part where it's like, Oops, gotta get your arm. Yeah, we'll, we'll sew your arm back on at the lab. And these two, like, reanimated corpses inhabited by two aliens uh, take up residence in a cave near Cape Canaveral, where they uh, intend to disrupt the U.S. space program. And uh, there are some uh, picnicking folks on the beach who stumble upon their cave. And uh, I mean, that's basically the plot. Mm -hmm. It's another Phil Tucker joint. When it ended, I went, whoa, what? It's over? Well, I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. And not a lot happens in it, although I was a bit taken by just the the visual style, just the kind of mood of the film. The cramped, dreamy feel of it all. I do think it's dreamy, you know? Like, I'd seen this movie before, too, and there are parts of it that I, that I, like, I was eager to revisit this movie because there were parts of it where I wondered, like, did that actually happen? It's a movie where, like, the alien beings are also portrayed as, like, lights that are just floating around the entire time. Yeah, and the scenes in their caves, again, I think they're lit by flashlights. Mm-hmm. There's something strangely moody and dreamy about them. I mean, sorry, folks, there's no making a rational case for this movie, except that, like, I just I just kind of like the mood of it, and maybe you will, too. I mean, unlike uh, Phil Tucker's most famous film, Robot Monster, there's not, like, any iconic thing to point at in the 
the middle of it when your alien beings are just round circles of light on the wall like you got an issue so the fact that it is so dreamy is more a positive than if it had been played straight and it had been completely competent but then ugh, it would have been like i don't know dance hall racket or something like that yeah absolutely uh i do re- i do recommend it for the curious so phil tucker after that film he did have a career as an editor and quite a successful career as an editor i mean it's it's amazing this is this is a twist worthy of robot monster itself in the 70s he worked on uh, among other films king kong the dino de Laurentiis film he worked in post-production on that he worked on the wonder woman TV show. He 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 was the credited editor of such films as Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen and The Nude Bomb, which was based on the Get Smart TV show. I mean, these were actual major theatrically released studio movies that he worked on. And he was supposedly around and doing editing work uh, all the time, even that most of it wasn't credited. His son said that he was always working, always out the door. He was known as a very energetic and boisterous man who was always plowing forward with whichever plan that he had in his head. He liked to invent stuff or say that he invented stuff like, oh, we created a new 3D process for making Robot Monster, or I created this new editing deck that we can use. But for the most part, in later years, he didn't talk a lot about his directorial career. There's that one interview with the Medveds, but uh, Phil Tucker Jr. writes the introduction to that book, and he says, I didn't, I didn't know anything about this side of my dad's life. It seems to have been a bit of a painful period, his directorial career. I mean, there's no real success there, right? Like, he made a bunch of films. None of them really took off in a way that wasn't them making fun of him. Like, supposedly when Phil Tucker read that 50 worst movie thing, he was not very happy with it, because... The way they just ripped into him without any, like, love there. Uh, when we did that episode about Godfrey Ho a long time ago, I remember saying that I thought Godfrey Ho was possibly the worst director we'd ever done an episode on. I mean, Godfrey Ho is Orson Welles compared to Phil Tucker. Um, so, obviously, any ca- any attempt to make a case for Phil Tucker flies in the face of all rational sets. And yet, here we are. I do like the films of Phil Tucker, not just Robot Monster for being like the definitive example of a certain kind of bad movie, but there's something subterranean about his films. There's something about the mood of them. They feel like they were made under a rock. They feel like they crawled out from under a rock. Uh, in my memory, I feel like I dreamed them. They are these amazing uh, little little products, residues, artifacts of like the shadow of a certain bad street in Hollywood. What is a great director, Will? What is a bad director? I would say the latter is a director that you don't even think about, that just does his work, it's anonymous, and then you move on. A great director is one that sticks with you. So I think it's safe to say that Phil Tucker is a great director. Somebody could perhaps quibble with that uh, that reasoning. I will not hear of it. <laughs> but I'm not going to. Phil Tucker, not only is he a great director, but he is in fact the greatest director we've ever covered. <laughs> I mean, Robot Monster, you can put that image alongside, like you said at the beginning, all those famous movie moments. It's right up there. It's probably in the top 10, I would say. So do we have any letters? Yes, we do. And as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Charlie. Yeah. When it goes, Hey, Justin and will love the podcast. The big movie controversy of the week is what else about gone with the wind. And I think it raises an interesting question. Are there any of these classic epic Hollywood spectaculars that you think 
do hold up well today, even to our internet-ravaged attention spans, I still love Lawrence of Arabia, and I think Spartacus is unfairly treated, but Ben-Hur runs a bit long, and Cleopatra is even more boring than Gone with the Wind. The genre is pretty unfashionable in film circles today, but I think even the boring ones have some great moments of pure cinema spectacle. Thanks, and keep up the good work, Charlie. Well, I agree with his general thesis that a lot of them are boring, but uh, most or many of them contain moments of like cinematic moments that you don't get anymore. Like uh, the Ten Commandments, for instance, four hours long. The first two hours of it are pretty hard to get through. But I would say, you know, once he starts marching in the desert, you know, when he parts the Red Sea and especially the big the big orgy scene at the end. I mean, there's just so much stuff in the frame. There are just so many people, so many horses and camels. I watched the movie for the first time a few weeks ago. The Ten Commandments had never seen it before. So boring. I was so bored the entire way through. Yeah, not even towards the end, though? Like, Ugh, Not even. I just wanted it to be over by that point. You know, I recently saw somebody, like, famous tweet showing my kids uh, the classic Sound of Music, and I'm like, what are you doing, man? Ooh, <laughs> like, boring. There's so many other movies you can show your kids. I agree that Spartacus is pretty good, though. There's, It's entertaining, and it's got some stuff to chew on in it. And uh, Lawrence of Arabia, obviously, is a classic, you know? Now, the question if any of them hold up... I would say probably not like those big bloated historical blockbusters. Like if you can watch them today and it ends and you go, this was a very moving experience that I did not have to readjust my expectations at all for. Well, I think Lawrence of Arabia is the one that probably holds yeah, Lawrence up. Lawrence of Arabia is the one. Holds up the best. And there are others like, you know, we, we watched The Greatest Story Ever Told for this podcast, which is, you know, incredibly Ugh. boring. I don't think it was even really well liked in its day. Um, it might be a little more entertaining if you saw it like in a gigantic theater Mm -hmm. you know and all the other ones i am kind of interested in them even though i know they won't be good like oh man anthony mann and robert siodmak ended up making big bloated uh blockbusters at the end of their career which are supposedly terrible but i'm like oh but i like those filmmakers maybe i will find something in them when i know i'll be bored out of my mind yeah (laughs) Uh, i recently watched um richard fleischer's um he big historical epic about the guy that was not crucified instead of Jesus. Barabbas. Yeah, Barabbas. That one is fun. And that's like a big three hour one that has just been forgotten. But like Richard Fleischer brings like a weird, like mean energy to it. And Barabbas is played by like old crackle face himself, Anthony Quinn, just like grumpy throughout it. So like there are historical epics that look like they'll be boring, but they are fun. So I don't know, man, like... I will keep watching them knowing that I'm just taking my medicine. And I would say that even the bad ones, like I say, like they're they're done at a scale and they're done with resources that just aren't aren't made anymore because uh, technology has made it more convenient not to use those resources. No one will ever watch like Exodus, the Ridley Scott Moses story and be like, wow, so impressive. Yeah. I mean, no one will ever watch it, period. Because why would you watch that? Uh, the letter actually has another good question. Uh, they go, P.S. This is totally unrelated, but I just watched the martial arts of Shaolin, and it made me wonder, is there any reason you two don't bring up Jet Li when talking about Hong Kong action? Because he was a huge part of my childhood. Is it because he doesn't have the authorial presence of Jackie Chan or Sammo Hung? Or because he isn't as good with the goofball stuff? That's an interesting question. 
Uh, I think you're on the mark when you say it's because he doesn't have the same authorial presence. When we talk about a Jackie Chan fight scene or a Sammo Hung fight scene, like they are they are auteurs of the fight. Even a Bruce Lee fight scene communicates a certain worldview. A Jackie Chan fight scene communicates a certain worldview. I don't necessarily get that from Jet Li. And also, like Jet Li, I don't know if the story of Jet Li's career is quite as fascinating as the story of certain certain other people's careers. Well, uh, you know, he studied to be a Wushu champion. Oh, yeah. And then he um, went to the Olympics, and then he ended up being in the movies. He only spoke Mandarin, but he ended up in Hong Kong making movies there. Jet Li is interesting only because he was essentially the Bruce Lee for people our age in the early 2000s, that because he was doing stuff like Lethal Weapon 4 and all those Joel Silver uh, urban martial arts films like Romeo Must Die and Cradle to the Grave, that he was kind of the go-to name when you talked about martial arts action. So like Miramax did the same thing they did with Jackie Chan, and there was like a whole bunch of old Jet Li films uh, given retitles like Fon Seyuk is now the legend. Oh yeah. And it was a way for me to get friends to watch something because Jet Li was in it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And like, he also had theatrical releases like seemingly every year like you know once a year you would go see hero or fearless or uh unleashed um so he was <laughs> danny the dog for the real fans i would say that yeah i mean the letter writer is absolutely right that like for the first like five to eight years of this century he was uh, i think uh, the most prevalent probably more prevalent than jackie chan just as like a kung fu figure at our video stores and on our movie screens uh so he was certainly very formative in in certain ways and also like i think he has a great filmography you know oh yeah he worked with the best i mean just the once upon time in china films he made with Choi hark like those are like stone cold masterpieces right there i mean those are like i would put the first two in like any list of the top five or ten uh of all time and you know Fong Sayuk is amazing Hero is amazing uh, even the parody of uh, Once Upon a Time in China he made for Wang Jing Last Hero in China that's great has action choreographed by Yu Wo Ping like he always worked with the best I mean I think that his main filmmaker association is with Corey Yun who he did a bunch of films like My Father is a Hero The Hero which was retitled The Enforcer by Miramax it's right to avoid confusion with the Gerard Depardieu comedy My Father the Hero so like what's interesting thing about Jet Li is that his authorial voice is just Koryun to the point that like Koryun choreographed all of his American films even when he was doing the Expendables Koryun choreographed his action scenes and nothing else and Koryun we haven't really talked about him that much but he is like the 80s and 90s kind of like new Hong Kong action aesthetic along with Yuo Ping he is like the master when it comes to that kind of stuff and Koryun I think that like post Yuo Ping Matrix action in North America, he is the leader in that. He did everything. Even like Bulletproof Monk, he choreographed a bunch of action scenes from that. Are you able to say what distinguished Corey Yoon's fighting style from Yuen Wu Ping's? I think that Yuo Ping's fighting style was a little bit more fantastical. Uh, Corey Yoon, uh, people who I know are action choreographers actually look down on him a little bit because he would go back to the well a lot. But Corey Yoon is also a guy that worked with Jackie Chan. He worked with Sammo Hung. So there's a kind of, you know, when he's on fire, he's like the best. Like you watch the film he directed Writing Wrongs uh, with Yung Bao and Cynthia Rothrock. Like there's action scenes in that that like are just solid gold. 
But then when he gets into North America, you see some of the stuff that he would do. Like he was really big with like people getting tied up when they would get in an action scene. There's one in Writing Wrongs. There's also one in Jet Li's The One, which Corey and choreographed, where um, I think like a bunch of police officers get tied up. And it just feels like a watered down, transposed version of what he did really well before. You almost get the sense that Yuwo Ping is always kind of innovating and trying new things. Corey Yun like went with the crowd. He would be willing to do whatever was popular. He even did a Cat 3 um, martial arts films called Women on the Run, where one of the women, she gets her fighting power by smoking opium. So yeah, you know what? There's stuff to explore there because Corian was working side by side with all the greats and c came up with them as well. So it's like, what is his style? I don't know. I'd have to sit down and think about it a little bit more before getting into it. We should do a Jet Li slash Corey Yoon episode. You know what? That is a great idea. There's so much to tackle, though, especially Jet Li-wise. Do you know that Jet Li and Stephen Chow made a movie together called uh, that was set in San Francisco? Oh, The Master. Uh, no, there was another one that was directed by Billy Tang, the Cat 3 master who made um, Run to Kill and Red to Kill. I don't know if you've ever seen those ones. Those are... Uh, I, I have seen Red to Kill, yeah, yes. Yeah. So Jet Li... And Jet <laughs> did direct a film called Born to Defend or Born to Defense, I think. So. It was called Born to Defense, yeah, which uh, always right. sticks out in my head because it's grammatically incorrect. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, lots to explore there. Thank you very much for the letter. Uh, gave us a lot to chew on. Again, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com if you got any questions. What are we doing this week on our Patreon, Will? Well, we are looking back at the moment when America lost its innocence. The moment when Jay Leno got The Tonight Show and David Letterman did not. We are looking at the 1996 HBO movie The Late Shift. Is there enough drama in this story to warrant a whole movie about it? How are the performance of the Jay Leno and David Letterman impersonators? What about someone like me who never watched shows what will they get out of this whole experience and what about me who has an encyclopedic knowledge of all things jay leno and david letterman <laughs> i like how jay leno was the first one in that <laughs> sentence well he won i have to give him the proper respect you'll have to listen to the podcast to find out uh that's five dollars a month you can subscribe at patreon.com slash the important cinema club get our whole back catalog in the process so what are we doing next week will next week you may have heard of oscar michaud who is the most prolific african-american filmmaker of the 20th century the most famous black filmmaker who is directing films in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, you may not know, though, about Spencer Williams, who was the second most prolific African-American filmmaker of the first half of the 20th century. He directed such films as The Blood of Jesus, which became sort of a church basement staple. He directed Dirty Gertie from Harlem, USA, Go Down Death, a lot of kind of sin and salvation movies. He was also an actor who appeared in a Hollywood in Hollywood movies and TV shows and a lot of the race movies. We will be investigating the story of Spencer Williams. He also did a bunch of black cowboy movies that were very popular around that time as well. That's right. Uh, Two Gun Man from Harlem, The Bronze Buckaroo. He was a supporting actor in some of those. So I'm excited to dive into that. And until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, interrupting to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, which include Cole Kirkendall, Pat Gregory Ellis, Charles Smar, Nick Grovesner, Tommy Scarpinato, Alex, Matthew Elangi, and AGS124. 
Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not continue to do this without your support. And I just want to remind people that the new Gold Ninja Video Blu-rays, Holy Virgin vs. the Evil Dead, and Strangler of the Swamp are currently available at goldninjavideo.com. But I just have to warn you that if you want to purchase one now, it's the best time to do it before they go out of print. Because even just this week, one of our older Gold Ninja Video releases has completely gone out of print. So I hope you picked up your copy of Kung Fu's zombie before it was gone and just a reminder that if you haven't reviewed us on apple podcast to please do it it really helps to find new people to listen to the show and gives me and will a little bit of a boost to go all right it's time to record it's time to edit it's time to release a new episode and if you could also share the podcast on any social media tell a friend we would really appreciate that as well and one last ask, if you could follow me at DeClue J and Will at Will Sloan ESQ on Twitter, we would also really appreciate it. Because we appreciate you for doing all this stuff. Now, let's get back to the regular scheduled programming. Will, are you excited? Bill and Ted, the bogus and excellent fellows themselves are coming back. So I'm not, I, yes, I am excited. Uh, Bill and Ted don't hold a huge place in my imagination. I saw the first one when I was a kid, but I am excited because I am a sucker for long gap sequels. I saw Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles in a movie theater. I love sequels that come out and you never think they would come out. Oh, wait, I need to take a sidebar here because how excited are you for the Paul Hogan comeback vehicle? What is it called? Yeah, it's called something like um, My Name is Dundee or like what What the hell is that movie called? It's his, um, what is that Jerry Lewis film? I can never remember the title of. His Max Rose. <laughs> his Max Rose. Except, no, I guess it's more of his JCVD because he plays himself. Oh, I, I got the title here. The Most Excellent Mr. Dundee. And it, oh. and it, So it stars him as himself trying to make a comeback, and it co-stars two fellow heavyweights, uh, Chevy Chase and Mr. John Cleese. I mean, I think you need to get Chevy Chase in these type of movies because he was also in that Burt Reynolds one as well. (laughs) Yes. And John Cleese will do anything to pay his alimony. Oh my God, he has so much money that he has to pay out. And... I mean, that movie looks hilarious. I'm sure that when it comes out, we have to do our own Patreon episode of it. So there was actually a very good episode of How Did This Get Made, um, where they interviewed the screenwriter of Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. Don't make me listen to How Did This Get Made, Will. I would never recommend the show except this episode. Um, The screenwriter was talking about how Paul Hogan tried to steal credit for the screenplay. Like... (laughs) <laughs> this guy wrote the screenplay and then Paul Hogan rewrote the whole thing. Like he, it's the same script, but he just rewrote the wording of everything. Wow. Making every joke just a little bit worse in the process. <laughs> and then he tried to cheat that writer out of credit. And the writer is talking about how it's like, it's, it's, it felt bad that like we were suing Paul Hogan for a movie that like, I didn't even want my name on. <laughs> I want the HBO behind the scenes story of that. <laughs> A dramatic filled uh, incident. But getting back to Bill and Ted's adventures, me neither. They were always kind of around. I think I saw the first one as a kid, didn't have that much fun with it. And Bogus Journey is mostly something in my memory that it was on the back of every comic book I owned. Then like pressed up against the glass. Yeah, and you me had too. death me in the too. background. And I was like, what is this? It was just omnipresent in that sense. I rewatched those two movies uh, this week. They are so much fun. I mean, excellent adventure. You definitely had to be there, I feel. It's not, like, really joke-heavy. Uh, it's mostly, like, their personalities. Uh, Alex Winter 
and uh, Keanu Reeves doing their thing. But Bogus Journey. It's kind of like Time Bandits, it's isn't it? It's kind of like Time Bandits. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly like Time Bandits. Napoleon's in it as well, uh, having wacky adventures. Now, Bogus Journey, this is the movie you want because it's like third rent Tim Burton-esque. It was the first film from the guy who would go on to direct Garfield and Zoom, the Tim Allen movie. Oh, nice. Yes. It's all like <laughs> built sets are like forced perspectives. It has an amazing plot, which is Bill and Ted get killed by evil robot versions of themselves and go to hell, which they then have to escape. Super fun. Actually made me really excited uh, for the third one, mostly because the third one, except for the directors who are basically like anonymous on these pictures. Uh, the third one is directed by the guy who did Galaxy Quest, uh, but it's written by the same guys and it's produced by the same people who made uh, one and two. I like that it's being made, though, you know, uh, because Bill and Ted didn't seem to me like a brand that had a lot of, um, you know, uh, currency anymore. Although I guess Keanu Reeves uh, is bigger than ever now, well, right? From the sense that I get is that Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves are genuinely good friends in real life. And uh, the two screenwriters of the first two are good friends in real life as well. And Alex Winter is friends with the producer of Bill and Ted. And that's the reason it kind of kept going. Like Keanu Reeves does not need to do a Bill and Ted movie. It is a labor of love. It's not like a, oh, we need to cash in on this. It's like, we like genuinely want to make this movie. And it has a great plot too, which is the second one ends with them like doing their great song, saving the world. And you know, everything happily ever after. It, like, jumps 20 years in the future. This one is like, oh, well, what if that stuff didn't happen and they're losers and they can't, they were never successful. What are their lives like now? So I'm excited for that. Sounds like fun. The only thing that worries me is like, ugh, shot on digital. That teaser trailer has no jokes in it. Just big, like, green screen backdrops. I think it's probably not about jokes. It's about just good vibes. It's about being there with the boys. Yeah, just Keanu Reeves talking like this again. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm all, I'm, I'm I'm all for uh, a movie about the power of friendship. It makes me think of the amazing story. Uh, I've probably said this on the podcast before. That, like Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves were having dinner and they got out of the restaurant. It was a hol- Halloween parade. And like they didn't realize that it was going on because it was like, I don't know, October 31st. And a guy walked by and went, oh, man, great old Bill and Ted costumes, guys. <laughs> <laughs> 